everyone and welcome to another Scotsway Hay podcast and today I'm joined by musician Carla J. Easton. Carla. Hello. Um, and we're going to talk about your new album uh, Impossible Stuff which is out on the 5th of October. But before we do that I was looking, because we were going to record this previously, yeah. I was looking at my notes from the first time round. And I was going to describe you as the hardest working person in show business. Yeah. And since then, I know you've not been well. Um, and then you've come back and you've recovered. And you haven't stopped. I know. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's how you're about getting the cold. Um, yeah, I had viral meningitis for about two months mm-hmm. between getting it and then recovering from it. Um, so I had to cancel a few shows in July. And then pretty much as soon as the doctor gave me the all clear, I was back out for doing uh, not just my own gigs but uh, collaborating with Stina from Honeyblood and then did two shows uh, playing keyboards with the Vaselines and had curated this show for Edinburgh International Festival and was then playing and organising that so yeah August I think has maybe been my busiest <laughs> month ever <laughs> because I think uh, the day you were told um, right you're, you're kind of clear that was the day of the gig in the flat yeah you know, the house gig <laughs> <laughs> That's the way to do it. I'm celebrating all clear playing again. Um, we'll talk about a lot of that stuff later on because I think some yeah. of the stuff you did in August was really, really interesting. But so the new album, uh, tell you explain a little bit about it, how you see it. Um, I think it's the album that I've always wanted to make, and maybe all the years I've been playing music and writing feel like it. Kind of feels like this kind of like increasing kind of line up a mountain to a point and I never knew what that point is and now I'm like without jinxing it maybe it's this album and this is something that I've been kind of working towards um so it was recorded last year in Canada and I just realized actually that the release date of 5th of October it was the 5th of October last year I arrived back in Glasgow with this album so that's quite nice and um yeah it was a year's a year's work Mm-hmm. pretty much uh, kind of writing and, and prepping for it and um, setting aside time in my lifestyle to really focus on an album which I've never done before which I think is maybe why for me anyway coherently it works as a, mm-hmm. a collection it's like a sort of snapshot in my life and what I was going through um, last year and all the changes that I made um, and I think I've never really put aside the time to kind of do that. It's kind of write a song here or there, whereas this is very much written as a, an album. Right. And so that time going to Canada, I think it was a kind of writing musical yeah. course, wasn't it, that you were taking? Yeah, so I went to Canada the first time in uh, March 2017. It was for the first ever singer-songwriter residency at the Banff Centre for Arts and Creativity. Um, and I'd applied for that residency in December 2016. It, it was on the, the newsletter subscription for the Banff Art Centre as a hangover from doing the Masters of Fine Art at Glasgow because right. it's, it's renowned for its visual arts residencies and that's really seen as a stepping stone to your career as a visual artist if you get that outside, like once you graduate. But I mean, if I'm honest, I was never fully confident in the visual art I was making. And I think everything I've learned really has, has gone towards what I do musically and how right. I research and maybe present my artwork and videos. Um, but 
on, on a side note, that's okay. One of my tutors there was Ross Sinclair, and I remember doing a tutorial discussing about making art and music simultaneously, and he said, look, if one's going better than the other, just focus on it, they're all the no, same like. thing. Um, which really stuck with me. Anyway, so the newsletter came in, and I saw they were doing the singer-songwriter residency, and I thought, well, the Teen Canteen album was out by this point, the EP was out, my first solo album was out, maybe I now had enough experience to really apply to something as a writer. Um, so I did it and didn't tell anyone. And then I got in and yeah, two weeks where there was 24 of us and then there was these mentors and they were all Nashville songwriters, oh, yeah, won well. Grammy and the Hall of Fame. And, and um, you could sign up for one-to-one sessions with them, but they weren't obligatory. Mm-hmm. And everyone had their own studio space. And you were just told, do do what's good for you. So I kind of went thinking, if I go away and in the space of two weeks, if I come back with one song, I'd be happy with that. But I came back with four and a half songs, which is the most I've ever written in a small period of time. And it really boosted my confidence in terms of my musicianship because I'm always, would say first and foremost, I'm a synth player rather than a a pianist. Mm -hmm. But the, the mentors there were like, you, you play the piano the way a songwriter does, you should never be ashamed or embarrassed the way you play and when you sing and you're doing enough to get the song across and just met so many wonderful people and Howard Billerman was one of them and I got to record two songs with him at a three-hour session and just kept in touch with everyone when I got back because it really was a life-changing experience and... Uh, and, and then Billum, took it from there. Uh, Howard Billman's worked with Arcade Fire and uh, various other kind of well-known folk as well, isn't it? So this was a great opportunity. It's interesting talking to people sometimes, whether it's writers or other artists, it's being allowed the time to to work, whether it's a writer in residence or whether it's a musician in residence. Mm-hmm. I think your friend Kirsty Law is doing a kind of residency yeah. at the moment. And it's just... There's a lot of obviously a lot of discussion about arts funding all the time and how that's cut and everything. But it just seems so important if you want to get people to do their best stuff that you allow them the time to be able to one find out how you make it and and then being allowed to go and and collaborate with others, which is something that you've done. A, a one hundred percent, and I know it's a big argument at the moment within the arts and music world that um, there's only a certain. A class of society that are able to have the time to make art and, and have a voice and, and um, because a lot of us need, need to work and need yeah. to support ourselves and you know I'm not like sad about the fact that I have to work I think I'm, I love my job and I love the people there and um, they're very supportive of giving me the time off if I need it mm-hmm. for gigs or whatever or residencies um, but I'd never had the time ever in my life like, even the whole way through uni, I worked mm-hmm. all the time. I'd never had two weeks just to focus on being creative before yeah. in, in my life. Yeah. And you think that time really has changed the way that you approach the music? Yeah, I think so. And just um, just allowing you the time to explore your ideas and develop them and sit them down and maybe you write something and you're not happy with it or you need to make changes and you have the time to do that. And just also being in that environment where there was 23 other writers there and we were all from different genres I mean 
excluding myself, there was maybe one other girl there who was would be classed as a pop songwriter. Mm-hmm. So even prior to going on the residency, I nearly pulled out two days before because I thought, what am I doing? Mm-hmm. You know, I've, I've never been kind of critiqued or been part of a discussion on, on my writing with other writers or mentors. Um, but everyone's kind of there in the same boat. So then all of a sudden you have this peer-to-peer support group and you know everyone you start off the residency and everyone's studio doors are closed but by the end of the residency everyone's doors were flung open and we were all walking in and playing with each other and writing with each other and you we were all like what would have happened if we'd had one more week on the residency you know by that point but I mean you you can see how strong the bonds were because you brought people over Mm -hmm. from that to play gigs over here haven't you yeah so last year once I got back from the residency, I kept in touch with um, sort of maybe my closest friends that I'd made on the residency, uh, and also Howard, and he said, you know, why don't you come and do a full album? I thought, great, and then I didn't even really have to think about it. I knew who I would ask to, to come and join me and who would really contribute to my songs, you know, mm-hmm. and because they just want to support what I'm doing the way I want to support what they're doing. So it was uh, Brett, Brett Nelson, Kev Corbett and Jesse Aaron Shire. I was like, I'm going to do this album, do it to come. <clears throat> they said yes. And uh, I mean, all the time, none of us are working like, How, how's this going to be paid for? <laughs> or how, how do we actually make this happen? Because it's not like they're all in one pa- place in Canada. It's yeah. such a large country, yeah. you know. So some of them were travelling the same distance as me, kind of <laughs> together. Um, and then Jesse was like, look, I've got this friend called Laura. And I just think, I'd love her to meet you and I think you'll get on and can she come? And I was like, yeah, that's fine. And then she ended up being on the album and I took my friend Debbie, who's the drummer in Teen Canteen, because we grew up together, mm-hmm. being friends since we were 11. And I thought, Debbie's a drummer and Howard's a drummer. And so for Debbie to get that experience would be great for her. And so we ended up this big rabble of Canadians and Scots making this record. And uh, But prior... To going over there, Brett came over here and we did some shows together mm-hmm. as a two-piece and did a bit of writing and arranging together for the tracks. And then we just had such a ball recording the album that in January this year, they all came back over. They were like, do you know what, let's just come over and play the album live because we've recorded it, but we've never actually performed it together, you know? Yeah. Um, so that's the idea of collaboration, but it's something that's always been important to you, I think, because you've always collaborated with other musicians, haven't you? Yeah, or just artists or yeah. writers. Um, I just think uh, you can learn a lot about what you do by working with other people and it makes you think about how your ideas are translating to other people and how they're reading it or, or listening to it. And um, I don't know if that's maybe another hangover from art school days, mm-hmm. you know, where you we could all be in the one class, but we all someone was working in video or someone was working in painting or... Or sculpture and but you'd have to talk about each other's works and have an open discussion about what it was you were researching and stuff so going back to the album um there's themes in it theme, well the ones that i've picked up are kind of going back to childhood kind of young love i've written down skint knees and broken hearts yeah. I don't know that's a kind of but there is those those kind of themes in it isn't it so is this a really personal record for you i think so i think you can be in a danger of self-censoring mm-hmm. uh, oh, yeah, your, your lyrics you know and and then it's like one thing the writer residency told me was 
you know, the mentors would spot it in one of our songs if you weren't being honest. They'd be like, you know, just speak it honestly and 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 write what it is you're trying to say and don't dress it up in fancy words. Just get get it out and be clear. And when I got back from the residency, I spoke to my family and I was like, look, I really want to just have time to write and, and I'll still work, but I'd like to read just Myers and sort of bargained with my mum and I was like you know like you let my brothers move home when they were saving up for houses I was like I'm not saving up for a house <laughs> but I'd like to write an album so can I please move home for six months and I think also being back in your childhood family home all of a sudden all these memories arise mm-hmm. and I wrote the album on my childhood piano that I'd had since I was eight and living in Curlute you know you'd look out the, the window and it's just fields and it was isolated from the city so you do just naturally think a bit more and f- philosophize yeah. a bit more about where you're at in life. And um, I'd say I'm probably most of the time quite insecure um, per- with my personal life, but then I don't really talk about it or write about it as much as I have with this. Mm-hmm. But I think it's okay to do that. And it yeah. still leaves it open to other people. Yeah. to kind of read in the experience. I think it's something that pop music does so well because yeah. you can kind of hide it in there in a different way. If you have a, a kind of more, you know, guitar or piano and voice and that's it, and you've got, you know, Leonard Cohen or Bob Dylan or Johnny Mitchell or whatever, it's kind of in your face what the themes are. Cause it, but in pop music, you can get a really upbeat pop music and then you dig a bit deeper and there's something darker going on there. Yeah, I mean, I'd say like a classic example of that would be Kylie Minogue's Better the Devil You Know. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a heartbreaking song. Yeah. And it is quite dark, um, but it's dressed up in this like really high energy pop sing-along thing, so you maybe don't realise yeah. the undertones of the lyrics going on there. But I've always thought pop music, of course you get your shiny manufactured pop, but you also get really amazing pop music and it's a universal language I think of wanting to belong to something mm-hmm. like a place or a person or you just feel like where you are and why you exist and it's do you know what I mean? I do and I think you know going back to childhood times on what you've been young and being at home and maybe the radio is your best friend and it's those songs that kind of soundtrack that period mm-hmm. in your life and they're usually tend to be pop songs I think mm-hmm um, now, for some people, this might be the first record that they know from you, but I think the first time I saw you play was with Team Canteen at Mono, and it was a Noiriki gig, and that would have been a long time ago, I think. I think that was maybe like our seventh gig ever <laughs> or something. But you've been making music for a long, long time, even yeah. before Team Canteen, haven't you? So yeah. give, give us a kind of potted history of you. Um, I started making music with a band I put together at Edinburgh College of Art called Futuristic Retro Champions. Um, we were very much a MySpace band. And again, I wrote all the songs, but I didn't sing them. Um, Sita, who would go on to be the bass player in Teen Canteen, was the lead singer. And we went, I think we were active between 2006 to 2010. Mm-hmm. We did so many gigs and, you know, we put out records, but it was like handmade CDRs and uh, like free downloads on MySpace and stuff. And then that came to an end. And then I started Team Canteen. Um, and it's just kind of gone from there. So it's about 14 years now I've yeah. been writing and recording and playing. And in 2016, you released two records. You had the Team Canteen one 
We also had Ed and mm-hmm. Homemade Lemonade, which again, to me, feels a little bit like a precursor or partner record to Impossible Stuff, is that? Yeah, I mean, the, the Homemade Lemonade album was an accident, which is why I put it out under an alias rather than my own name, because I wasn't sure what I was doing. And those songs were recorded... Um, without a view to releasing them. I'd written them and I'd demoed them and I knew they weren't Teen Canteen songs, but I didn't know what to do with them. And I recorded five, sent them to Lloyd at Olive Grove in the hope he would maybe say to one of his bands that he was working with, do you want any of these songs, mm-hmm. you know? Or maybe one of his artists would maybe want to do some co-writing. So they're very much demos. But then he emailed back saying, if you record five more, I'll put out the album. And I was like, okay. And obviously it's just me and Joe Kane yeah. play all the instruments on the record. It was just the two of us. We made it in a garage, right, you know. Wow. And um, so then I thought, well, if you use the, the alias Et, you can put a band together for the live shows or it could just be me or whatever. Um, and also the Teen Canteen album was coming out the same year and I didn't want to detract from that because we spent so long trying to get the money together to mm. make that album and... It ended up using a pledge campaign and, you know, we were so thankful to everyone to help us finally make this record, you know, that I didn't want to distract from it by then, but like, oh, here's my solo record. So if you put it out under another name, you know, people don't necessarily have to know it's me. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I think definitely doing Homemade Lemonade gave me the confidence that I could do stuff outside the band that yeah. I'm used to working with. Uh-huh and still do stuff with the band that I'm in and it doesn't have to be one or the other, you sure. can do both. Well, it must have been um, a confidence booster because you see you didn't expect it to be released and then it was released and it was really well thought critics, you know, critically yeah. it did really well. Um, but then so did the Teen Canteen yeah. album too. So it was, uh, I mean, I think the Teen Canteen uh, album, it almost sounds like the greatest hits record, even though it's your first album, because every it sounds like singles, you know. Um, yeah. And I don't know whether that is because you've been recording the music over a longer period of time. You know, you said this one was done in a short space with some of the songs written in two weeks. Mm-hmm. But the Teen Canteen album, I mean, there must be songs going back you know, quite a few years. Yeah, I mean, the oldest song on the Teen Canteen album's Cherry Pie, because I wrote that before Teen Canteen started, mm-hmm. you know? And that was one of the first songs we always played. But then the name of the album, Say It All With A Kiss, that's a lyric from a song called One More Night that's never been recorded past demo phase. Right. Uh, and there's other ones... Um, that we started out playing live or did demos that haven't made the album, because... I do, I got asked recently what my advice would be to someone starting out, and I think it's like, don't rush. Mm-hmm. You know, Teen Canteen started gigging in 2012 and our album didn't come out till 2016, but that meant we had four years to hone our sound, mm-hmm. yeah. work out what we wanted to sound like. It gave me a bit of time to hopefully get better at writing. We became better musicians over the time. But more importantly, we built up an actual fan base and following for the album. Yeah, yeah. You know, so it wasn't like we released the album and and no one heard it. It was like by that time people were there and they were supporting us and they actually helped us make it. Yeah. So you knew people were kind of with you yeah. and wanting you wanted to do it. it. Yeah, yeah. Um, because I think there can be too much rush these days, 
And there's really no t- the only time limit you're putting on it is when you're putting on yourself. Yeah. And then you're giving yourself pressure. And I think what is lucky about Teen Canteen is because we had so many songs, we could pick and choose what ones to record fully for the album. Yeah. You know? And I think you can tell it's a band that know each other inside out and play, you know, well together. I think you're right. Sometimes there's this pressure, well, let's put a band together and have to get something out almost straight away. And then if nobody gives us a back, well, let's, it's not working, let's finish it. Yeah. Instead of giving yourself time to get better and better. Um, well, let's talk a little bit more about the collaborations that you've done um, outside of the records ones you've talked about, because you, you're on Kirsty Law's album. Yeah. And that's an interesting collaboration, because you're quite different in terms of sound, because mm-hmm. you're more of a kind of folk sound, but there are similarities. Again, there's a kind of dark underside mm-hmm. going on in that. So how did you end up working with Kirsty? Um, well, I lived in Edinburgh for five years, and in Edinburgh, there's so many literary events on, like, all the time. Yeah. Like, it wouldn't be, I would go, in, living in Glasgow, I always go to gigs. Living in Edinburgh, I was always at poetry evenings, yeah. you know, they were just great, or mixed sort of cabaret nights, and I met so many incredible people, um, and at one of those events, uh, saw Kirsty Law sing for the first time, and she does it completely unaccompanied, like no instruments, just gets up, and this kind of otherworldly voice comes out of her, considering she's so young, you know, yeah. it's so wise and informed, and I was just blown away, and I think to the point where I was kind of like high quite shyly and didn't really but then we kept bumping into each other at events and stuff and um a couple of years ago uh I'd started looking at my family tree and discovered that my great 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 aunt Mary Ross was a singer on the Isle of Skye oh wow um, I mean, she was a full-time domestic servant, but she was a domestic servant to this lady called Frances Tolney, who would go on to do 105 songs from the Western Isles, uh, which has become this book that saved a lot of yeah. lost songs. Right. And Mary, my Aunt Mary, is credited as teaching Frances 27 of those songs. So you delve a bit deeper and you realise... Uh, well, I got in touch with some university professors and they were like we've been trying to work out who Mary Ross is and I'm like hello (laughs) (laughs) I can tell you all about the family you know Um, and it was incredible and then I got in touch with Kirsty about it because I was like I quite like to revisit some of these songs and sing them and maybe learn Gaelic to sing these songs my great aunt used to sing Um, so I met Kenna Campbell through all this Mm -hmm. And she was like, oh, I'd love to hear you sing those songs because your aunt obviously sang them. I was like, don't know, Gaelic. And yeah. Anyway, so me and Kirsty kind of got talking through that. And then on a side of that, she told me about this new project she was doing and asked if I would sing on a song that she was writing for me to sing for, for her. And I was like, I didn't have to think about it. I just said yes. Yeah. You know, I just love what Kirsty's doing. And yeah, absolutely. I really, really love that album because yeah, so it transcends so many different genres. And it's just a beautiful piece of work. Yeah. You know? It's absolutely, it's it's unlike anything you'll hear, but, but there's something familiar about it as well. And it might yeah. be a kind of musical, cultural memory that, you know, we've all got of whether it's um, hearing folk music in different uh, ways. But that's really fascinating going back and looking at that yeah. past. Because I, knew, I know that at university level, the idea now of rediscovering songs 
from Scotland's extremes, if you like, Highlands and Ireland and the borders as well, is a really big thing because these are songs that were kind of almost always passed down word to, word to mouth yeah. and learnt rather than ever written down, so it's difficult to... Yeah, and that's what Frances told me did. So she would go round, uh, it was mostly in, in yeah the Western Isles and Sky and stuff, and um, especially with a lot of the old walking songs, they were just passed down through word of mouth and storytelling, and that was part of your entertainment. And because uh, predominantly it was illiterate people, yeah. they were using these songs to convey emotions and feelings and stories. Francis told me scored them down and preserved them for future generations to learn, yeah. and that's such an important thing. Yeah, definitely, it's amazing. Um, another a collaboration I want to talk about you song with Bill and Sebastian. Yeah. Yeah. So how did that come around? Uh, I just I got an email one day and it said from Stuart Murdoch, and I was like, hmm, is that actually from Stuart Murdoch? And. Uh, <laughs> read it and it's like oh do you want to try co-writing and I think he'd seen Teen Canteen perform at one of the girl group effect gigs I just said yes and um, we just had a couple of sessions writing together and came up with this song called Best Friend um, which sort of started life I guess I was telling Stuart about it. I just moved in with my friend Blair and we'd been at high school together and um you know, we'd kind of like stayed friends over the years, but we hadn't really hung out and then just started being friends again. So let's get a flat together. We both just moved back to Glasgow and just that kind of thing of like what it's like when you move in with someone. And so that was kind of like a starting point. And uh, yeah, I did the demo and then um, Stuart was like, do you want to come down to rehearsal to, to hear it? And he was like, can you maybe sing the words just so we can keep place? And it was cool because I'm sitting there and they ran through it twice and I sang it and Stuart's like, how does it sound? And I'm like, it sounds like a Bill and Sebastian song, you know, <laughs> so I thought it was really cool. Um, and then, yeah, and then he just said, you know, we'd love you to sing it on the recording, which I was not expecting, you know, I kind of thought, this is a song, you know, right as though this is a, a Bill and Sebastian song. And it is a Bill and Sebastian yeah. song. Um, but yeah, it was great to do. And... Well, what other collaborations? I mean, I think you mentioned before we started, you've been doing work with the Vaselines as well. Yeah, so I guess over the years, for some reason, me and Eugene seem to co-write Christmas songs together. <laughs> um, <laughs> and then we were involved in a project uh, in Edinburgh once where he had to write a dog song and I had to write cat songs. So, <laughs> yeah, just uh, last year when I got back from Canada, they were doing a gig at CCA and it was like, oh, would you play keyboards with us to do it? I was like, yeah, no bother, it'd be great. And then, yeah, to Dead and Brown Newcastle with them in August. And then there's a couple more shows at the tail end of the year, which is cool because Eugene's like a great friend. But also the Vaseline's is one of the first records I really got into when I was 13. Yeah. So it's pretty mental to be playing songs because when you're 13, what you listen to then, it's such a formative Absolutely. part of your life, you know? So the songs that have been with me for a while to then be like, there's not actually a synth part on this, so <laughs> what am I adding to this, you know, that, that makes it sound a bit better or enhances what's already there? But going back to what you were talking about, the support you had in Canada, I mean, it does sound like, and I found it not even playing anything but being involved a little bit, there's a real support network of musicians as well in, in Scotland, is that yeah. fair to say? Yeah, I'd say so. I mean, um, I'd say particularly starting out with Teen Canteen, we were so lucky that people got behind us straight from the off like 
the first gig we got given in Edinburgh was from Latch, the anti-folk guy, um, who's brilliant in his own right, and he put us on at a gig at Henry Cellar Bar, and then within a week, Warren McIntyre put us on at Stereo, supporting his band, and straight from the off, people were helping us, like, Douglas uh, Stewart was so kind of encouraging um, to, to keep going with these new kind of songs that I was writing, and to sing them, and... Um, everyone's just always been been really yeah. great. It doesn't really feel like there's one generation and another generation or there's established and non-established. Everyone's just kind of happy to, yeah, to or play even and work with each Glasgow, other. Glasgow, Edinburgh, I mean, everyone just seems to kind of come together. And yeah, I mean, with Teen Canteen, we, we started gigging in Edinburgh and Glasgow straight from the off at the same time. I mean, I guess I was living in Edinburgh and the rest of the girls were in Glasgow, which maybe helped us. But I don't think there needs to be a one or the other. No, I totally agree. But I think some people still have that idea mm-hmm. uh, in their head. Um, well, you mentioned um, you've had a busy August. Yeah. Um, and one of the things I, I really want to talk about was since yesterday, um, the Unsung Women Pioneers of Scottish Pop. Mm-hmm. So this is a film. Mm-hmm. You mentioned Blair. Is it the same Blair? No, it's a different, different Blair. Blair. All right, yeah. okay. So it's Blair Young who um, has made uh, music videos with Bicky Clyro and... Bell and Sebastian and Idle Weld and stuff. Mm-hmm. So how did that come about? Um, so Blair uh, has done a couple of Teen Canteen videos right. and it was when I was emailing him about the Cherry Pie video and what that would be and we got talking about how our girl bands and girl groups represented in videos. For some reason we were talking about Bananarama and I was telling about how much I love Bananarama and how their first record was recorded and how they were discovered and they came from post-punk and I was like, oh, I didn't know that. And um, then I started telling him about Twin Sets and he was like, who are they? And this is ages, years ago, right? Like, I mean, I studied at Edinburgh College of Art between 2003-2007 and it's as long ago as that I've been thinking someone should do a documentary on Scottish girl bands and Mm -hmm. girl groups. So I told him the little information that I'd gathered over the years from what I could find from either people I knew in Edinburgh from the Noiriki scene and speaking to them or little snippets you could get online, which wasn't a lot, and then mentioned other bands. And I think the thing is, see, when you're like an, an avid music collector, like I am and like Blair is, if someone tells you something, you want to check it out. And yeah. he was like, I can't find this, you know? <laughs> and um, So then it was like, okay, he said he'd been looking to do some sort of music documentary, he'd been wanting to do that for a while, and this felt like something he could be passionate about and help tell the story. So we've been working on it for about almost two years, I would say, to this year. Uh, just meeting women, chatting them down, hearing their stories. And uh, Edinburgh International Festival, I think, got wind of it last summer mm-hmm. and emailed uh, asking if we would do something, and I said no, because I was like... <laughs> You know, this has been a lot of research and time and, 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 and tracking people down and getting their trust to tell your stories. And also, I'm very cynical, and I was like, I'm not putting on a night just so you can tick a big gender diversity yeah. box for your festival. Then I sort of realised I was being stupid, and this is not about me and my research, but a great platform for all these women that haven't had the platform before. So then we were like, OK, we'll put on the night. So the documentary is nowhere near finished. We don't think we'll call it since yesterday, although now we might. Um, and then, so yeah, we put on this night where I got a house band together to learn all these songs. So it was 13 songs we learned by uh, Twin Sets, Etz, Long Legs, Sunset Gun, The McKinleys, Sorrow, 
strawberry switchblades. His latest slam yeah. and sophisticated boom boom and where possible the original uh, singers from the band joined us. And it was brilliant and we screened what will be, I think, the trailer for the documentary. But yeah, it's just, it's not in any way, the documentary is not victimising, it's not meant to be, it's meant to be a celebration. Mm. Um, and it's made from someone that's been in an all-girl band, you know, and I want to know my heritage. And maybe if a documentary like this had existed and maybe if these bands had gone on to be huge and we'd known about it, it was normal. Yeah. You know, it was it was normal and it was equal and we didn't think of band as four white guys, you know, band became a non-gendered thing. Then maybe me and Debbie from Teen Canteen wouldn't have waited till our late 20s to form a band. Maybe we'd have done it when we were 15, 16, yeah. because that's when we were going to gigs and buying records and really head over heels in love with music. Totally, and totally. So it's down from a point of view of let's celebrate and let's tell these stories because these stories haven't been told. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, or they've just been sidelined. And I mean, I always think since yesterday's obviously the Strawberry Switchblade song, and there's a band that are kind of thought of as one hit wonders when actually they were really involved in that whole scene that was happening in Glasgow. 100%. And Rose, such a prolific songwriter, you know, I'm so glad that Night School Records reissued the Sorrow album mm-hmm. under the You Possess because it's just stunning and it's beautiful. And I think everything that Rose has done has been tremendous and she's one of our great songwriters mm-hmm. but she's not talked about in no. that way and she should be yeah absolutely so you, you mentioned um, having a, a background in fine art as well and, and the idea of collaboration outside of music and is that something that you're going to continue to do you think I mean, basically are you going to move away and do something outside of music yourself or do you think uh, music I don't is know. it for you I guess the documentary is like yeah. a big thing because when I was at art school it was kind of video art I did right, okay. not documentary style I mean it was really like bad lo-fi puppet videos <laughs> I mean um, puppet videos are all the rage yeah, these days. No. but I mean if it wasn't for that puppet video I wouldn't have written the song Fireworks which then I asked Douglas to appear as an apparition to my puppet sing the song Fireworks BMX Bandits then recorded the song Fireworks for their album BMX Bandits wow. in Space. Yeah. And then that was kind of an encouragement to keep going with that kind of songwriting. So to me, it's all kind of linked in. But um, I'm looking forward to really getting my teeth stuck into the documentary and maybe having, I wouldn't say a break because I'm wanting to play this album Impossible Stuff live loads and, and do lots of singles. But I'm also really into like video making again and I've been working with uh, Ross Dixon on a series of videos now and we've got the next couple planned and just the ability to maybe do, you know, to actually just sit down and go, why don't we do a video per song for the album yeah, and that's yeah. quite an exciting thing and it gets me thinking visually again about things and, and ideas and... um. But I think the puppet puppet video days are definitely over. <laughs> like Michael Jackson's thriller, we're going to have a video for him. Yeah, no. <laughs> uh, talking of video, I did want to talk about uh, the video for Dreamers on the Run, which um, is basically Scotland's entry into the Eurovision mm. Song Contest, introduced by Aidan Moffat. Yeah. <laughs> it's was brilliant. So was that one of the ones that you worked on? Yeah, that's uh, one that uh, we worked on. That's our second video we worked on together. So it was just through, like watching the Eurovision and kind of... Ross is like, why would we do a video that's like the Eurovision? The more I got into it, and then obviously there's kind of like political implications of if Scotland entered the Eurovision on its own, and 
um, rather than as the UK. And I know Neil Cooper pointed out that Scotland had hosted the Eurovisions before by proxy because I think some country couldn't do it. But we were like, no, but we're hosting it because we've won it. You know, Scotland's won it. <laughs> yeah. and that's why we're hosting it. And um, But then I was just like, oh, who would present it? They were just discussing. I was like, totally Aidan Moffat would totally present it. He loves pop music. His commentary during these competitions on Twitter is great. And he just said, yeah, and it was uh, just kind of fun, fun to do. And he would be perfect if a kind of semi-drunk Terry Wogan could do it for all these years. Yeah, right? no. Aidan Moffat could totally do it. And you were saying that yeah, you went back to your, your mum's in Carluk, um and South Lanarkshire has got a hell of a history of pop music. Mm-hmm. You know, Vaseline's, BMX Bandits, Teenage Fan Club and all of those other bands. Is that something that feeds into your stuff? Is it something you can't avoid coming from that part of the world? Uh, I mean, my eldest brother's 10 years older than me, so uh, I think the first ever gig he went to was maybe a BMX Bandits gig when he was 15 or 16. And I certainly remember singing along to Kylie's Got a Crush on Us yeah. at the age of like five or six and being a big Kylie fan, I thought it was cool. There was a song about her and my brother liked that song. And um, he was into Teenage Fan Club from a very young age and he's still obsessed with them, yeah. I would say. Um, but I don't know, there's because there's a generation gap, but it meant that what my brother was listening to at 18 is what I was listening to at eight. Yeah. So it wasn't so much about where the music came from. It was just... Like, I remember walking into his bedroom and there was a massive Jackson Pollock print on the wall and then surrounding that was like tons of Oasis posters and Teenage Fan Club posters and Bjork posters and Beatle posters and for me actually quite significantly I couldn't see where the art print finished and the music posters ah, began right. yeah, yeah. it was one big thing um, but yeah it did mean that you know at school trying to go into your class MP3 and say you're a fan of Stone Roses meant <laughs> you got signed blind in the playground. <laughs> so it was more maybe the influence of Murray than, yeah. the, than the area. Now I just think it's fascinating that this small area, and I guess it was maybe around about the same time, but produced all of this uh, amazing pop music. And I think some of the, the best pop music actually doesn't come from kind of city centres and stuff. It comes from these areas, mm-hmm. whether it's um, East Kilbride or, or, you know, Bells Hill or um, East Nuka Fife or something like that, yeah. you know, that there seems to be something about, maybe it's what you said about having a bit more headspace, a bit more expanse, a bit more time to think than maybe the city allows you, I don't know, or maybe it's just because there's nothing... There's nothing to, to do. do. There's nothing to do. Like, I swear to God, as soon as me and Debbie were old enough that our parents allowed us to just go to Glasgow on our own to gigs, we were there. And we always talk about, like, when Debbie was 15 and I'd just turned 16, somehow we convinced my mum and her parents to let us go to Teen the Park for the whole weekend camping with no adults, just the two of us. And that was the first time I saw Polyphonic Spree, right? And it was like, I want to do that. I want to get up on stage. I want to be in a band that makes big pop music. And Debbie saw No Doubt for the first time and just fell in love with Gwen Stefani and was like, No Doubt are the coolest band ever. And it was like, you know, but at the same point in time, I look back and I'm like, how the fuck did we convince (laughs) our parents to let us go to that? A festival of that size, and I mean, it's, obviously gotten a lot bigger since me and Debbie were 15 and 16 but 
that was our outlet. All our pocket money went on getting CDs. Going, I remember there was one weekend where it was at the Barrowlands, and again, we're 15, 16. That was such a good year for music, yeah. 2000, 2001. So many albums came out that me and Debbie still love. You'd like Badly Drawn Boys de- debut, Interpol's debut, Polyphonic Spree, um, I think Richard Ashcroft's album came out by then. So there was one weekend at the Barrowlands where we went to see Badly Drawn Boy on the Saturday and then Richard Ashcroft on the Sunday. And my brother lived in Denison at the time and he said we could stay over in his spare room. And then, so Sunday night, it was like, we'll stay over at Murray's and then we'll get the train into Curlick in the morning and go to high school. (laughs) And uh, we turned up and we were late and we get called into the headmaster's office and we kind of said, I'm really sorry, we were at this game. He was like, what gig was it you were at? And we spoke about it and we was like, oh, it's great, you know, it's great you're going in to see all these bands and stuff. I think he was just happy we weren't part of the group that spends your weekend just drinking, drinking on the high the I know. <laughs> so, but it was just, and it was because there wasn't really anything for us to do in the town. I mean, there was a community centre and there was, and still is street level and they were putting on gigs, but... I was never asked to be in a band at high school. Yeah. It was a guy thing, sure. you know. It yeah, wasn't like yeah. it took until I got to art school where I was like, "Can I be in a band? Can I form a band?" You know, and um, and then there was other people I met who were like, "Yeah, let's do it." You yeah, know? I think it goes back to what you're saying about something like, um, since yesterday or whatever you end up calling it being so important because if people don't see examples of other people that they identify with doing it then it's less likely that they're yeah. going to do it it's like you know Meg White playing the drums and then suddenly you get women who go right I'm going to go and, and pick up the drums now um, so the album's out on October the 5th yeah. and the single's out just now isn't it the, yeah well we just going to make the video that. and put yeah, it out but it's, not, it's not really the same is it but you know? I think if you pre-order the album Lloyd was like well, we'll make that, you can get that track if you pre-order that, <laughs> plus the other singles, but, um, yeah. How did you find, I mean, maybe it's not been any different to you, but you've been on a couple of different labels and you said you crowdfunded the Teenage Fan Club album as well, mm. but, not Teenage Fan Club, Teen Canteen, Teen Canteen album as well, um, but that eventually came out on last night from Glasgow mm-hmm. too, didn't it? So how have you found, I guess it's another example of collaborating, but collaborating with different record labels? It's good, and I think it's good actually to keep Teen Canteen separate from my stuff on a separate label. I mean, last night from Glasgow, I've always been so supportive in what I do. Ian and Julia are like best friends and have really helped me over the last year. And uh, it was great that last night from Glasgow and Olive Grove Records could do a joint release of my last single as well. But um, I think I've come to learn that keeping keeping the two projects separate yeah. is actually it's quite nice and... Um, last night from Glasgow we're just going from strength to strength as well so uh, we just can't get it to work that my album could come out on their label but I love working with both labels because you can phone them and yeah. you can be like do you want to go for a pint while we discuss this <laughs> or you know I'm working till 10 but I can send you artwork at like 1 in the morning and uh, just the kind of it feels more yeah like you say a collaboration when you release rather than someone saying I need the artwork by this point and you need to work with this photographer and mm. it needs to sound like this it's like I just turn up with a finished album and say do you like it 
Did, did you, have you seen Cora Bissett's show that she did? That, no, um, I really wanted to see it's that. It's kind of all about, you know, being manipulated by a, a big record label into, mm-hmm. as you say, using a photographer that you don't know and perhaps putting yourself in situations at a young, young age as well. As if you get it, I mean, I think hopefully it'll tour because it's an excellent mm-hmm. show. Um, I guess you probably haven't thought about what you're going to do next. Uh, well, you've got the documentary and you're obviously going to tour this record and then... Is it you taking a break, a little break? I don't know, I freak out when I take a break. Because <laughs> um, actually, I'd say I've got about four tracks already recorded that I was working on with Stephen Watkins. Um, so it's like whether that develops into an album or that's just another EP. But I think, um, again, going back to talking about people maybe rushing to put stuff out, I think I've just written one of the best things I'll maybe ever write in my life. And if I can't top that or do what I think is an improvement, maybe I don't release something, you know. There's an awful lot of pressure. What amazed me was how quickly, you know, Teen Canteen went from having gigs and stuff like that. Like, we didn't officially announce we were having a break. But how easy you can just drop off someone's radar just by not constantly gigging and constantly releasing. And, you know, it's... Burn out. Yeah, absolutely. And, and um, so I'm not going to rush to maybe finish what is the next album. I'm just going to enjoy, enjoy this one. This one. Yeah, quite right. Uh, it's a great album. It's out on October the 5th, so get a, a hold of it. It comes out in blue vinyl as well. I've got yeah. my blue vinyl copy order. Can't wait. Uh, well, Carla, thanks so much for doing this. It's a real pleasure. Thanks. And uh, we'll be back very soon with someone completely different. Cheers. Mm-hmm.